You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome. Welcome. Welcome to the Freedom Pact. Professor Panda, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm happy to be here. Amazing. Man, so as I was kind of just saying to you off a um a conversation that I had on this podcast uh, a couple of years ago with Andrew Huberman, um, obviously a professor from Stanford. He was telling me about your work a long time ago. Um, it seems like you guys have just been up to just so much amazing research. Um, but a place that I would love to actually start is when I was digging into your story, um, I was quite interested in the story of your grandfathers um, because this has seemed to me as if they lived two quite different lives and had perhaps two quite different outcomes. Um, so I wonder if you could kind of share this story with us. Yeah, so I grew up in India. And when I was a kid, I lived with my very close to my maternal grandfather. And during summer vacation, I would go and visit my paternal grandfather. My maternal grandfather used to work for the Indian Railway. And he used to work sometimes the night shift um, so he would go to work late at night and then come back in the morning and um, when everybody was asleep he would go and work so i was thinking wow my grandfather is a superhuman and <laughs> in fact all the shift workers if we think about it um, in every hour of the day our society modern society runs with the effort and hard work of shift workers. So they are truly the guardians of the galaxy. No, guardians of the world, because we cannot use that word. <laughs> um, and then in the during summertime, when I would go to my paternal grandfather's house, uh, who, who lived on a farm and he didn't have electricity for a very long time. Um, and his life was running on clockwork, like, right uh, he would wake up right at dawn and then take care of the start working in the garden or take take care of the animals uh, the farm animals and then the, the whole day was um like a clockwork uh, definitely at specific time of the morning we all would uh, sit down for breakfast and whole day we are mostly outdoor in the backyard uh, in the farm or catching fish from the pond and as the evening hits, so we would have an early dinner and then go to sleep uh, because there was not much electricity. There was no electricity, and then you can only do so much with um, candlelight or, or uh, you know, that lantern that we used to have. And this life went on, and then in retrospect, what I realized was after my paternal, uh, after my maternal grandfather retired. Uh, from his job, um, he was, you know, he worked in this day and night shift, disrupting his clock um, almost every week, every other week. Um, so right after retirement, within very few years, he was diagnosed with uh, dementia and 
he passed away in his early 70s whereas my paternal grandfather who lived in sync with the day night cycle worked in the back uh, in the farm uh, physically very active and had a good night's sleep almost every night uh, did not have much access to modern healthcare because the next um, healthcare center was few miles away and i I don't remember ever seeing him falling sick or taking antibiotics or any drug uh, for AIDS-dependent disease like diabetes, obesity, or cardiovascular disease. And he lived uh, to a healthy old age of early 90s. So, of course, at that time when I was a kid, I could not connect how these two lifestyles um, led to different outcomes, but in college and later on when I was doing my PhD, when I reflected back connecting what we know now about circadian rhythms and how our daily lifestyle are dictated and also governed by um, and feedback to the circadian clock. Uh, now I can fairly wonder whether the shift work-like lifestyle of my maternal grandfather led to um, dementia and um, not such a long lifespan, whereas uh, being in sync with uh, nature and nurturing circadian rhythms as my paternal grandfather did, uh, led to a very long healthy lifespan with very little dependence on medication. Yeah, that's such an interesting um, story there. And for the people listening, obviously, you mentioned circadian rhythm. So for the people that don't know, you were the author of the book, The Circadian Code, and then more recently, The Circadian Diabetes Code. So I wonder if we kind of just start at the bottom and then let's go up. So for the person listening to this now, how would you best describe what a circadian rhythm is? And then how does that affect human health? Yeah, so the best way to describe it is um, it's just like a daily timetable or the uh, to-do list that we make and then assign at times. Uh, that makes our life goes easy every day because we know what is going to happen next and we do the next thing. So circadian rhythms are the internal timetables for every cell in every organ in our body, including our brain. And circadian rhythms, uh, this timetable constitutes the master plan that guides what time of the day or night each of our 20,000 genes in our genome turn on and off so that every function of our cell, organ, and our body uh, is tuned to peak performance. Uh, when I say peak performance, peak physical, intellectual, and emotional performance. So now to uh, break it down, so this essentially the circadian rhythms tell our organs to do certain things at certain time. So these timed activities in our body improve our immune function so that we can better fight infectious disease without staying or without inviting chronic inflammation. And uh, the circadian rhythms also accelerate repair uh, functions so that we can recover from injuries because almost every day, knowingly or unknowingly, we go through a lot of injuries to outside of our body and also inside our body. And these injuries have to be repaired and clocks, circadian rhythms and circadian clocks, essentially have a pre-programmed plan uh, what time of the day or night our cells should be repaired. And then the third thing is circadian rhythms also optimize our brain function to elevate 
intellectual and emotional health. So circadian clocks tell our brain uh, chemicals or neurotransmitters to be released and function at the right time. And finally, circadian rhythms also supercharge our metabolism, our detoxification and DNA repair programs so that we live at a reduced risk for many chronic disease starting from depression and diabetes all the way to cancer and dementia. So essentially circadian rhythms are the master coaches of our daily function to keep us at our peak physical, emotional and intellectual performance. Well, um, I, I really like the sound of that. So some of the stuff that you mentioned there, so when we are kind of in tune with our circadian rhythm, as you mentioned, it improves our immune function, accelerates repair, as you said, of damaged cells, optimizes brain function. So assume I'm assuming that also not being in sync with our circadian rhythm, the inverse would be true that our immune function is worse. Our cells are not repairing properly. We're at we're going to perform worse cognitively and emotionally. Am I right with what I said? Yes, uh, you are right on spot. Actually, this is uh, <laughs> what anyone would have experienced when we travel from one time zone to another time zone, because that's when our circadian rhythms are not in sync with each other and also not in sync with our outside world. And that's why if you try to think, if when we try to connect, what happens during jet lag? Essentially, our brain is going through a brain fog. So we are emotional and intellectual kind of, we are not at a peak emotional and intellectual health because our brain cannot process information coming in and also cannot give the right output. So we are cranky, we are foggy. And same thing happens with our metabolism because we are essentially eating at a time when our clock is telling our body not to eat and it's also telling our body to sleep um, when we have jet lag. Um, and if we try to exercise at the wrong time, then it comes. So all these conflicts build up and give us what we say, jet lag. But imagine if that jet lag continues for months or years, which happens among shift workers, mm -hmm. then that lead to um, long-term complication, increased risk for many of these chronic diseases. And in short term, we know that that affects our performance. Um, it's, it's really hard to beat your own personal record of a one kilometer run or <laughs> going to the gym and lifting some weight. Similarly, we know that when you are uh, out of sync, when we haven't slept enough, we feel cranky. It's really hard to take right executive decision and also in our personal life to maintain healthy relationship with our family and colleagues. So um, these circadian rhythms, when they're disrupted, it affects our human performance on a daily basis and in long term can increase risk for disease. It's interesting, as you were saying that, and. Uh... The last two times that I've cried within the last five years have both been on long haul flights back as I'm traveling through time zones, watching films on planes. And I definitely get more sensitive when I when I do travel. <laughs> um, so I would love to just pick up on some things that you mentioned, but there, 
Um, so obviously, I think that a lot of people think, you know what, I certainly, I want improved immune function. You know, I certainly want improved cognitive performance. One thing that has become, I would say, very popular within contemporary times is this idea that we can help regulate our circadian rhythm um, through morning sunlight. Um, I wonder, do you have any thoughts on this and perhaps how powerful do you think this practice could be? Yeah, actually, this is an area where my lab um, has made very many seminal discoveries. Um, so if we dial back in the last century, most part of the last century, we knew that light is the most powerful agent to reset our circadian clock, because whether it's um, summer, winter, or whether it's raining or snowing, uh, one constant theme of our rotating planet is the sun comes up at predetermined time. So that is daylight, if not full bright sunlight, at least daylight. And we know that circadian clocks are tuned or entrenched to this day-night cycle. But what was really intriguing was many blind people and many blind mice and rats who cannot see, who cannot navigate through the outside world, they can still sense light and reset their clock. Wow. So almost 21, 22 years ago, um, when I was a postdoc, I discovered, uh, along with two other labs, um, that a blue light sensing protein called melanopsin, present in only a few thousand cells in human and mouse retina, can sense light. And these cells, we also discovered that directly connected to the master clock uh, that's present in all, only 20,000 neurons at the base of the brain, base of the hypothalamus, uh, that's um, bottom of the brain. So that uh, formed the scientific basis to understand how light entrains our clock. And the next big discovery that we also made was these cells are more sensitive to blue spectrum of light. Um, and why this is important is sunlight or daylight is the richest source of blue light. Um, you know, you can bring up all types of LED lamps, um, but till now, um, and no other light can beat the power of sunlight. And sunlight is the richest source of blue light. Um, so that led to this idea that bright daylight, which is rich in blue light, uh, can synchronize our brain circadian clock to the outside world. And this research was going on mostly in mice because it's really hard to have access to healthy human retina that can be taken out of the eye globe and then studied in a disc. And only recently, again, four or five years ago, our lab made another big discovery that um, by using retina from people who donated their organ after death, uh, this organ donor program, uh, we are extremely grateful for, to those families who agreed uh, that we could use the retina from, the, from their loved ones after they have uh, the deceased. We figured out that, yes, just like in mice, the human retina also has several thousands of these light sensing, blue light sensing neurons. Not only that, uh, surprisingly, what we found, the human blue light sensing cells are 
need even more light than the mouse needs to activate a good chunk of these cells. And that makes sense because mice are nocturnal, they live in the dark, so a little bit of light is good enough for them, but we humans are diurnal, we live in the daytime, we, we are more active during daytime, and they discover that we need even more light than a lab mouse to activate these cells now makes sense. Now going back to your question about the morning daylight, and this is where, again, um, Andrew Huberman actually made a critical discovery. And at that time when he was a professor, he was a faculty at my neighboring institute, UC San Diego, um, he also discovered that these cells, these light sensing neurons um, make connection to different parts of the brain. Some of, that, some of those parts are linked to alertness and um, arousal, um, in terms of alertness um, and also can connect to brain regions that may indirectly trigger migraine pain when you are exposed to too much of light. Um, so that, those key discoveries, if we put them together, essentially um, these melanopsin cells or blue light sensing cells do a few things in the morning that are very important for us. One is these cells, when they're activated, they indirectly reduce production of melatonin from our pineal gland. As we know, melatonin is the night hormone that's produced at nighttime from pineal gland, and melatonin helps us to go to bed to sleep. But in the morning, we should turn off melatonin production uh, so that we can be more active. You don't want to spend the whole day feeling sleepy. It's okay to be sleepy at nighttime and have good night's sleep. So these melanopsin or the blue light sensing cells help to stop the production of melatonin from our pineal gland. So in that way, it, getting exposed to bright morning light, daylight or sunlight um, actually helps to stop the production of melatonin and then stop feeling sleepy. The second thing that happens indirectly is the same melanopsin or blue light sensing cells also activate different brain regions that increase our alertness and arousal so that we feel more active. And this is very important for many of us who feel a little bit low or depressed. And particularly in winter time, this is a big issue in Northern latitude of more extreme latitude that uh, doesn't give doesn't get enough daylight and typically we also tend to cover our windows and we don't go outside that much in winter um, so that's why this idea of winter blue or winter depression is um, largely not exclusively due to insufficient exposure to daylight to activate our melanopsin cells so now we can summarize all of this saying, yes, in the first half of the day, it's ideal to go outside if you can to get some daylight or sunlight. Of course, you should not be looking at the sun, even on a cloudy day in London or wherever you are, um, <laughs> you can have 5,000 to 10,000 lux of light. And when I say 5,000 to 10,000 lux, that's a lot of light because 
Um, for an average person, we need a thousand lux of light for 30 to 60 minutes in the morning to really feel a lot, feel less sleepy, and then start a good productive day. And thousand lux of light is what you get eating your breakfast next to a large window. Um, and five to 10,000 lux of light is what you get if you just walk out, outside or if you have your breakfast under a canopy, um, under an umbrella or tree. Um, and then if it is a sunny day, then you can get 100,000 lux of light, even 200, 250,000 lux of light in, a, in the middle of a sunny day. So that's the history of research leading up to this idea and also people have shown that uh, this bright blue light or bright, bright LED light that is rich in blue spectrum of light is very effective in reducing depression. It's also effective in reducing melatonin production. So there is a lot of science that has gone into this idea of daytime bright light exposure is very good for our health. I got to say, uh, my eyes are a honey glazed after everything you've just said. Because I'm so excited about about what you've just what you've just mentioned. So, just kind of offering some sort of summary there into what is clearly a very actionable um, point. So, light, as you mentioned, was one of the most powerful things we can do to set um, our circadian rhythm. In the morning is obviously very beneficial, but it also makes me think that how many people in this day and age are um, coming into interactions with bright light at night, which, as you mentioned, is having these kind of interactions with perhaps melatonin, which is then affecting their circadian rhythm through things like mobile phones or, or bright light in the house or, or things. Is that also something which would work the inverse way and then negatively impact someone's circadian rhythm yes i guess um the the key is breakfast under daylight and uh dinner under candlelight <laughs> yeah so <laughs> so, yeah. so what happens at the end of the day uh a body um, has to cool down before we go to sleep and melatonin production has to crank up and um as you nicely said, yes, this melanopsin cells, as I said, are less sensitive to light. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're not completely insensitive to light. Uh, they're less sensitive to orange colored light, or for example, candlelight or light bulbs that give out light that looks like candlelight or orange shifter. So melanopsin cells are less sensitive to that light. So that means to boost our sleep-promoting hormone melatonin at nighttime, um, one thing that we should do is to avoid light, bright light in the evening. So avoiding bright light is almost like taking a sleeping pill from many of us, um, and you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> so what happens in our daily everyday life what we have been doing is in the evening, most people who are coming back from home, we tend to go grocery shopping or picking up the drugs or supplement from drugstore. And in the last five to 10 years, after the introduction of very inexpensive LED bright light, 
many stores, particularly drug stores and grocery stores, are brightly lit. So if you take a light meter and measure, you get 1,000 lux of light in a grocery store or a drug store. At least in the US, I have measured it. I also measure in different countries and UK is not very different. Europe is not different. Many of the corner stores in uh, Japan, 7-Eleven, uh, Lawson's, all of them now have 1,000 lux of light. Just imagine in the morning, 1,000 lux of light or eating breakfast next to a large window will suppress melatonin, increase alertness. Uh, the same effect you get when you walk into a brightly lit store and it reduces melatonin production, um, puts a break on it so that even after you come back from a brightly lit store, it will take a few hours for melatonin production to rise up. So that's one habit that a lot of us do and um, this is something that's avoidable. The second thing is, as you pointed out, uh, we are constantly interacting with rectangular pieces of glowing objects, whether it's <laughs> cell phone, <laughs> whether it's our tablet, uh, even laptop monitor, computer monitor, or television. And in fact, the size of the television has also increased. So now um, the average television size is more than a meter across diagonal. Um, so it's a big area of our retina is exposed to this bright light. Um, then many people, they want to, when they remodel their house, they also put a lot of LED, bright LED light in the living room um, and sometimes even in bedroom because everybody wants to close the windows or put the window shades and uh, curtains uh, for privacy. And then they want to boost up light inside the house during daytime, but the same light continues into night. So um we have created we have we have we, are, we have created an anthropogenic world without paying attention to circadian rhythm because we get less light during daytime and we boost up light in the evening and that leads to sleep disruption um, because we cannot produce enough melatonin for nighttime sleep so then the question is how do we manage the evening light because the morning light, the solution is very simple. Step outdoor at least for 30 minutes. That's the best way to synchronize your clock. And this is the best and the cheapest and almost free antidepressant. And um, similarly for nighttime, starting from the evening, uh, if you can dim down your light and reduce your light exposure. So for example, you can put all your grocery store uh, or any any visit to a brightly lit store to the weekend or earlier in the day of early evening. Uh, second, at home, you can set all your um, monitors and phones uh, to night shift feature or night light feature so that you can set a time, say eight or nine at night when these devices will dim down and also switch automatically to orange spectra so that there is less pressure on your melanopsin or melatonin system. And then the third one that everybody can do if you have a little bit of money to invest is to put dimmers instead of light switches, just um, swap them with dimmers so that you can dim down in the evening. Yes, you can brighten up during daytime if you have curtains and blinds, but in the evening you can dim down all the lights. 
So by adopting very simple tricks like this, one can boost circadian rhythms um, as it is influenced by light. More light during the day, less light at night. I love that. I love that. And one question that's jumping out to me is this idea throughout my life that I've heard it from friends, from other people, of these ideas of, you know, a night owl versus a, a morning lark. Um, mm. and, and this makes me think, you know, is do you think that perhaps there is some sort of genetic aspect to it? Or is it the case that if I took these night owls and I put them into a forest, I removed their bright lights, and I said, okay, you're now going to go to sleep with the sun, you're going to rise with the sun. Would the uh, night owl status, would that soon go away, is my question. Yeah, are you taking away their caffeine also? We we limit it to maybe 11 a.m. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, you know, just like in any other aspect of health, um, circadian rhythms are regulated by genes. So as you can imagine, if there is a mutation in circadian rhythm genes, then it can change uh, our rhythms. So we may be night owl or morning lark. Uh, having said that, um, I can also um, bring up another um, thing that we all no, we all experience how genes have not changed over the last several thousands of years. Um, but we have seen a rapid increase in obesity and diabetes. So although we know there are few genes when they're mutated, they can make us more prone to obesity and diabetes. Um, that means our lifestyle is interacting with our genes, maybe, so that leads to obesity diabetes. Similarly, I would say, the genes or the mutations that can give rise to behaviors like um, night owl or morning larks, those mutations exist, but they're extremely rare. Um, they're not even one in 10 or one in 100, they're one in few thousand. And whereas in our daily life, when we interact with people, we always see some people, uh, if you know 10 people, two or three will say they're night owl and two or three will say they're morning light. So that means that most of this behavior is not genetic, but something else. So this is where a uh, lot of things that come into play because um, I just mentioned caffeine um, because caffeine does reduce sleep pressure. And that's the reason when we, when we are sleepy, we take caffeine and there is also another component, alcohol. And if you think about it, last 20 to 30 years, both caffeine, tea, and alcohol consumptions, all these three classes of beverages consumption has gone up. And also, they're not restricted to only morning time. People consume all of these throughout the day and even sometimes late into the evening. So it's possible that for some people, caffeine may be metabolized and cleared from the system in three to six hours. Whereas for a lot of us, um, it can take 12 to 24 hours to clear out all the caffeine that we have ingested. So that means somebody, if there are two people, two, two people drinking the same amount of caffeine in the morning, 
one may be able to clear it out and go to bed by nine or 10 o'clock. The other person may not be able to clear it out and can only fall asleep or feel sleepy after midnight. So similarly, um, I was talking about melanopsin and we know light sensitivity can also change vary from person to person. And in fact, some of the experiments done in laboratory conditions where uh, people are exposed to light and their pupil constriction is measured because the same melanopsin also helps to constrict and keep the pupil constricted very tightly under bright light. And what scientists have discovered is um, people can vary as much as tenfold in the light sensitivity between two people. So imagine in the same household, there may be five people living and some are more sensitive to the same living room light than the other. So we all experience it. In every household, some people will say, well, I can fall asleep even in a lighted room while watching TV, whereas other people just cannot fall asleep. They have to have complete darkness. And we don't understand what determines this difference in light sensitivity between people. Similarly, difference in caffeine uh, tolerance or caffeine sensitivity between people. Uh, these are only two examples. We also know that uh, when we eat, a body temperature, core body temperature goes up because blood circulation goes to the core and it helps absorb nutrient. And how long it takes to digest that food also changes, it also varies from person to person. Some people are very slow in digestion and some people are pretty quick digesters. So now if we put all of this together, then we can imagine that yes, um, there may be many factors, even outside the clock, that relate to our behavior in terms of caffeine, how much light we're exposed to, particularly artificial electrical lighting in the evening, or what time in the night we are actually having our late night dinner or beverage or whatever you are eating or drinking, that all of that can affect when we feel sleepy. So that's why the example that you gave, if we, and in fact, um, one of the chronobiologists or circadian biologists I really admire is Ken Wright Jr. from Colorado. He did this experiment. He took his lab on camping trip and he noticed that many lab members claim that they are night owls, they could not sleep before 1 a.m. in the morning, but everybody fell asleep during camping by 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> and not only fell asleep, they actually had great night's sleep. They were fully rested. Um, it was not that he was forcing them to sleep. They fell asleep by themselves. And then in this next year, when we when he measured uh, cortisol, sorry, the melatonin level, he also found that when people are in natural condition, away from electrical lighting, um, the melatonin levels began to rise much earlier. And uh, that also says that uh, at least exposure to light, exposure to caffeine, and few other things that we do during daytime can affect when we go to bed at night. Having said that, now if you think about the um, people who are morning larks, they wake up very early. Um, 
we have to ask how early because you know <laughs> now in this modern world a lot of us we tend to wake up very late seven eight even kids even high school students or college students if they're given chance they would wake up at nine or ten o'clock easily so then the question is is someone waking up at 6 a.m a morning lark or just normal it's a relative term right? right so usually what we see in in non in natural condition without electrical lighting or under very dim light in laboratory condition people will tend to wake up very close to dawn um, sunrise time little before that so that's very normal um, what is not normal is when people wake up say at two o'clock uh, in the morning and they really fall asleep by seven or eight in the evening um, even though they are not doing any shift work they don't have a morning job and those people are extremely rare um they are not the norm they're not uh, really uh, as frequently found as you imagine so there is a societal trend that we tend to think people who are waking up between five and six they're morning like they're not they are actually waking up according to their circadian rhythm and the ones who wake up really early two three or before four o'clock without an alarm clock and feel completely fresh in the morning, they're extremely rare and there are some genetic component to that. That's really interesting. And there's a lot, I think, of actionable advice and a lot for our audience and myself to ponder on there. Um, I would love to perhaps switch gears here because I appreciate you're a, a very, very busy man. I would love to kind of ask you um, about your work in the time-restricted eating. Um, so I think about over 10 years ago, um, you and your lab released seminal work into time-restricted eating. You guys have really done a lot of good work over there. You'll have to release a book on your productivity secrets. Um, but I would love to kind of ask you about this because what many people listening to this, they may not know, is really you are perhaps um, uh, one of, I guess, the, the scientific pioneers behind um, the 16 to 8 diet, um, if, I, if yeah. I can say that. So I would love to just start off with just a basic question. How did you guys perhaps set on eight hours as opposed to 12 or 10 or nine? Or, what, was the, what was the reason? <laughs> yeah, so the history is when we... Um, Sometimes you start doing very basic biological studies and you don't know where things are going and um, that gives you a lot of insight. So um, actually the journey started in 2002 when I was looking at, um, when we say circadian rhythm is present in the liver, then the question is, what is it doing in the liver? So we systematically looked at what time of the day or night which genes are turning on and off in liver and in mouse liver, of course. And what we found was there are many genes that are involved in um, absorbing glucose, making glycogen, storing them in liver, or making um, essential fats and then sending them out, or even making blood components that are involved in bleeding, clotting, and uh, fight against viral infection. Many of these processes were rising and falling in a circadian manner. And then the second clue that came was in 2009, when we did a very simple experiment, when we changed the feeding time in mice, 
Because the idea was, well, if brain has the master circadian clock and is telling the liver when it should expect food, what happens if we give mice or humans food at the wrong time? Um, will the liver clock adjust to the new timing? Because if it doesn't adjust, then that's a big problem <laughs> because it's not getting food at the right time and the liver is not ready. What we found was surprisingly, the liver clock was tracking when the mice ate, not when the mice saw light. And subsequently other labs also showed that yes, um, food timing sets the tone or sets the timing or phase um, or the tempo of circadian clocks in almost every organ in our body, even more than half of the brain follows when we eat. So then the question is, well, if our goal is to sustain a strong circadian rhythm um, to be healthy, then in addition to light and dark, it makes sense that feeding and fasting of when we eat should be a very powerful way to nurture our circadian rhythm. So that's why we did this experiment. Um, actually, it was not preset that we'll do, uh, we'll feed the mice for eight hours or fast them for 16 hours. Uh, there are a few things that went into it. One was, we know that for an average human, not in mice, for average human, when we eat our last meal or when we eat say breakfast in the morning, um, we have a big meal, the food goes to the stomach and then it gets digested into, or digested means broken down to tiny particles, and then it goes to, and some, some of it is absorbed, like the glucose is absorbed and few other things are absorbed, but then it goes to a small intestine where proteins and fat, those are absorbed. Um, we know that it takes, for an average human, it takes five hours for that food to get digested or broken down into small piece in stomach. So that means, even though I finish my dinner at 6 p.m., my stomach is still digesting that food, breaking that down until 11 p.m. at night. So that means for five hours, I'm not eating, but the kitchen is still cooking. It's still kind of prepping that meal so that my organs can get nutrition. So now if we imagine that uh, during that five hours, um, the stomach is also not getting repaired, right? Because when it's digesting, there's a lot of damage done to the stomach lining from acid and um, the other toxins that we inadvertently eat in our food. Uh, so that repair process to happen should happen afterwards. And those repair process can easily take six to eight hours. So that means for six to eight hours of repair plus this five hours of digestion, one should not be eating. There's a rule of thumb. So then you can easily come up with, well, somebody should not eat for 12 to 12 plus hours. So in mice, when we did the experiment, just imagine, just like regular people, we also have, a, most of our students and postdocs, we also have a, regular we tend to have a we try to have a regular life so that means my grad student christopher balmers who is a faculty currently at uh, university of california santa cruz that time he was a student he and i we did the experiment so the experiment involved uh fasting so we had the 
light dark cycle adjusted so that during daytime it was dark for mice so we had a room which was completely dark and we wanted to feed the mice during the dark phase because they are nocturnal they tend to eat at night so that means we have to come give mice food for x number of hours and then at the end of our day we have to take away that food so that they can go through their fasting and if you think well most of us we come to work for eight to nine eight to nine hours and <laughs> christopher's girlfriend also wanted him to be in the lab for nine hours so that's why we said okay so let's start with eight hours and <laughs> we also have to do the experiment in a way that it's not too short because if we give mice access to food for five six or seven hours then they eat less and then if they eat less we know that reducing calorie can improve health so we cannot figure out whether it's reducing calorie or the fasting so we kind of settled on eight hours and then the mice could eat sufficient calories within eight hours so that nobody will question that they are reduced in caloric intake and that led to the first paper and <laughs> then we actually have done experiments in mice and that were published those papers were published in starting from 2014 uh, when we systematically put mice on 8, 9, 10, 12, and 15 hours of feeding, and then the rest was fasting. Uh, what we find in mice is 8, 9, 10, they work very similar. Um, the health benefits are almost uh, identical, I would say. And then 11, 10, after 10, up to 12 hours, there are some benefits, not a ton, but still, there are some benefits and after 12 hours if mice are eating for more than 12 hours then there is not much benefit so a simple answer to your question is uh yes um eight eight is not a magic number and nine and ten also work in mice and it also works in humans because in most of our clinical studies we don't typically ask people to eat within eight hours because for many of us eating within eight hours is a little bit difficult people who are working they're going to work for eight plus hours plus their commute time and getting ready before work and getting back and winding down or preparing meal that can take time so that's why most of our studies we ask people to try 10 hours and if they are successful, they may reduce it to eight, but not. Um, we don't require that. And we still see a lot of benefits in human studies. That's really interesting. And for your next uh, study, you'll have to make sure that you get a research assistant that is single. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, that that's really, really interesting. And, and the five hours to digest food um really really kind of makes me think a lot and in particular i can say that since i uh come into contact with a lot of this research and i stopped consuming my last meal oh sorry i started consuming my last meal much later into the day something i've been doing now for five or six years um i can say that my sleep certainly has improved has improved yeah. i mean i would say dramatically uh, but i would love to ask because you mentioned kind of so many benefits there to this compressed eating window um i would love to ask perhaps is there anyone that you know this may not be right for for instance because i can imagine that compressing an eating window to you know at, at first for me in the case anyway it was 
you know, I got really hungry at first, but then my body adapted over time and th- that went away. But essentially, and you may, may see this a different way to me, it's kind of like putting the body into a state of threat in terms mm. of um, not eating a meal at the start of the day. And I'm just wondering, are, are there perhaps any people that, you know, that approach may not be right for, for instance, if someone is perhaps, you know, very anxious or... Um, I'm just wondering if it has any kind of impact on on hormone regulation. Just throwing some ideas around. Don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, so what we typically see is um, some people take it to a little extreme and they come up with eating only one meal uh, within four hours and six hours. Um, those are difficult to sustain over long term, even for healthy people, um, because they tend to binge it and um, there are not enough long-term studies to see what are the adverse impact, if there is any. But what really happens is uh, there are many people who try to eat within, say, eight hours or six, seven hours. And at the same time, they're trying to, they think that they can combine all healthy habits together. So they eat within a short time, they reduce their calorie intake, they're eating a lot of um, uh, fibers, um, salad, etc. And they also increase their physical activity. Right. And then what, what is happening is, forget about the timing of food, they're eating less and they're more active. And that puts them in a, if they're not, if they're not overweight or obese, then this can put them in a negative energy balance um, that can have some adverse effect, particularly in women, if they're eating less within this short period of time, at the same time exercising um, a lot, then that negative energy balance can affect the estrous cycle or menstrual cycles. And we know that nearly 40% of athletes, not only female, male athletes included, they, they are in the negative energy balance. And it's called relative energy deficiency in sports or reds. And they have a lot of um, issues in their physical, emotional, and intellectual health. They are more prone to mood swings, depression, anxiety. They're also more prone to um, risk for bone fracture and um, their digestion and GI tract issues also develop. So that's why if someone is trying to, for healthy people, starting with anyone who is trying to do eight hours time of eating, um, just listen to your body to see whether you are actually getting into that dangerously um, inadequate nutrition. Um, for women who are premenopausal, if uh, they see that they are becoming amenorrheic, so that means they are uh, maybe they are eating less, and you have to bring up that uh, calorie. For over, overweight and obese who do not have um, any type 2 or type 1 diabetes, it may be okay to eat within 8 to... So that's why we always ask people to eat within 10 hours because in 10 hours, people can accommodate three meals and they may not go dangerously low on calorie intake for several days. Uh, only when people try to do six to eight hours, that's when one has to be careful about their calorie. Now, in terms of um, different conditions, again, 
um, people who are doing very high level of physical activity or trying to do weightlifting, bodybuilding, et cetera, where they have to in a positive energy balance, eight to six or eight hours of um, eating window may not, not, I'm not saying that will not, may not give them enough opportunity to eat. Uh, so in that case, one can extend or increase that time window. Among uh, people who should not be doing, we actually cannot say for sure whether uh, pregnant women uh, should be doing this because you are eating for two and then there is a lot of hormonal changes going up, going on and then there is growth of your child. Mm-hmm. And um, the danger is if someone is um, already at a negative energy balance or um, insufficient nutrition that can trigger something. But what I would say is those who are planning to get pregnant, and we know that nearly 60% of women, at least in the US, are planning to get pregnant, they are either overweight, obese, or do have an underlying metabolic condition. So it may be good to start planning to have a child. You can start practicing uh, time-restricted eating or nurturing your circadian rhythm so that you can have a healthy pregnancy. So you can lose some weight, bring down your blood glucose to normal healthy level, and you become regular in your um, cycle. And then it may be okay to um, have a healthy baby. Similarly, we don't know after um, giving childbirth, um, depending on whether someone is breastfeeding and also working and uh, some people also want to go back to a lot of physical activity to lose some weight and that can be a little bit tricky to combine that with eight hours or six hours time restricted eating Um, but the bottom line is everybody can choose a window and i say that anyone from five year old to 100 year old uh, can safely eat within 12 hours (laughs) consistently because anyways you have to sleep for seven hours at least and then you have to give your body break three to four hours before bedtime and also we are not waking up and immediately eating it's also not good for our metabolism so i say that everybody can choose a consistent window of 12 hours and eat within that 12 hours um, sufficient nutrition um, irrespective of most health conditions except very rare cases of hypoglycemia and then if you want to improve your health, then you got to work with your quality quantity of nutrition and see whether you can shrink it to eight, nine, 10 hours. Yeah, I've heard other uh, scholars use the term IFAN, intermittent fast, inadequate nutrition, um, which, I, which I love. But there's so much in there that, that I, I, I really, really um, enjoy. I just have to ask you just three quick um questions that our listeners have kind of uh sent in um before i ask you to sign off tell these guys where they can connect with you um one of the questions was it actually really made me think was um science at the moment seems to be just in terms of science communication seems to be so popular um and in fact one of the reasons when we started this show was we saw so much in books that when we were reading lots of books that, you know, it seemed to be like a little niche community of people that had this information. Unless you really went out to it, the average person on the street just really didn't have 
the accessibility to the information. But now, for instance, you've got quite a popular Twitter account. Um, Professor Huberman, for instance, has got a you know his channel. Matthew Walker um, has also done great work in terms of sleep. I mean, his stuff on sleep was was really really changed the way certainly I thought about it. So I just wonder, perhaps, if you had any thoughts on this um, exciting time of of science communication that the likes of, of uh, Huberman and Walker and yourself are kind of, of talking about. Yeah, I mean, uh, we as scientists also have the responsibility to communicate science in a way that's accurate for the time and <laughs> understandable. Because I always see, sci as scientists, we are always living in the dark ages because what we know is true right now. Um, in five years, the science will progress and we'll know more details, nuances of those things. Um, but at the same time, we have to keep that balance and communicate science. And you brought up um, many interesting issues that there are these ideas that are in boxes in different silos, and then how do we bring them together? So for example, we discussed eating and light, and you mentioned sleep. So then the question is, for a regular person, how can we combine all of this information so that a person can have um, a healthy circadian day? So uh, how can we be on time with our circadian rhythm? Uh, so along that line, maybe I can summarize. Um, so I always say there are six simple rules to um, nurture our circadian rhythm. Number one is try to go to bed at a consistent time and be in bed for at least eight hours so that you get seven hours of restorative sleep. Because when we sleep, that's when we detoxify our brain we increase synaptic connection, connection between neurons so that our memory improves and our brain can, different parts of the brain can coordinate with each other so that next day we can take much better executive function, our emotional and intellectual health improve. So that's why go to bed at a consistent hour and then stay in bed for eight hours. And the second is after waking up, um, try to wait for one or two hours before the first meal, first calorie containing meal, because that's when the night hormone melatonin is declining and then the day hormone cortisol is reaching its peak. And I said, this is the time of changing of the guards. <laughs> uh, and both melatonin and cortisols have very different, very confounding effect on glucose regulation and nutrient metabolism. So that's why it's better to avoid eating uh, for one or two hours after waking up. And then number three is try to eat your first meal at a consistent time because that first meal gives signal to our circadian clock uh, that it's time to start the metabolic timetable. And then after the first meal count, um, whether it's eight, nine, 10 or 11, how many hours you can comfortably uh, eat within that window and then try to eat all your food and beverages that contain calorie within that window and outside the window water and your medications as, as prescribed by your physician will be okay. 
And what we're seeing is that a lot of animal studies and human studies showing that this pattern of eating, which we call time-restricted eating, because there is no um, explicit advice to reduce calorie or calorie restriction, and in popular media, it's uh, the popular form of intermittent fasting, um, but you can do eight, nine, or 10 hours. Uh, that seems to have a lot of health benefits. Um, and as you mentioned, which is not really discussed in many issues is it also has a better benefit on the brain because it seems to improve nighttime sleep. Um, so that's number three. Then the number four is um, don't forget about light. Um, and <laughs> because during daytime, you should go outside for at least 30 minutes to get some daylight. Daylight is the best antidepressant. It's plentiful and free. You just have to step outside. And then the number five is um, what we're finding, again, circadian rhythm community has found in the last five to 10 years, a big discovery is uh, exercise in late afternoon, early evening is uh, much more beneficial than exercise um, at other time of the day. Oh. Having said that, I would say exercise anytime is much better than no exercise at all. <laughs> but if you're trying to get the best bang for your buck, uh, and if you're limited by time, then afternoon exercise seems to be better because there is less risk for injury. A lot of people, particularly older individuals, they are more at a higher risk for injury and exercising the late afternoon, they can reduce that risk for injury. Uh, second, it improves 24 hours blood glucose. So people who have pre-diabetes or diabetes, if they're trying to improve their blood glucose by exercise, that's the best time. And number three, uh, people who have high blood pressure, nearly half of the adults in the US and also in the UK and in a good chunk of people, 30 to 40% of people in European Union uh, do have um, moderate or high blood pressure. And late afternoon, early evening exercise also improves blood pressure much better than morning exercise. And then uh, number six is finish your meal two to three hours before going to bed. So no bright light and no food for two to three hours your, um, before your bedtime. And this so that it prepares your body for going to bed at a consistent time. And also you get the deep restorative sleep that everybody deserves. I love that. Um, you are doing incredible work with your app, mycircadianclock.org. Um, you're also very active on Twitter. And for anybody that wants to see you on, for instance, Google Scholar, they can go and check out your more academic work, as well as your two books, which we've discussed and that will be linked below. Um, but perhaps tell us um, about where you would like our audience to check out, where they can learn more about you and the incredible work that you were doing um yeah tell the guys where they can connect with you yeah so you already outlined so for my academic work google scholar is the best place um they can check out uh, my publications most of my publications are public access so that means people can click and read the whole publication and uh twitter i try to be <laughs> regular on twitter sometimes i follow up but still um in Twitter, I try to highlight what is really cutting edge basic science research and translational research in this area um, and try to communicate that. And 
Uh, we also have a research app called My Circadian Clock, um, and there's a website mycircadianclock.org that has a lot of information, reading materials on the blogs, and we also encourage people to download the app and share their nutrition, physical activity, and sleep through the app so that we can learn more about uh, both what is the current trend of lifestyle among different age groups, different socioeconomic uh, status, different parts of the world, and how current events, for example, how COVID affected our rhythm, or how time change, daylight saving time will kickstart uh, around this time in springtime and also in uh, fall, how that changes. And all of these actually help us to design the right experiment mm -hmm. in the lab and also in clinic so that we can improve uh, health for millions of people. So those are the three major uh, areas where people can connect. Um, recently, we also started a, so we took all the My Circadian Clock app as a research app. So there are a lot of things we have to collect. So it puts a little extra bottom on participation uh, for data sharing, but then we made it very simple. We started a new app called On Time Health. And this is a consumer facing commercial app uh, that we are uh, launching now, uh, which essentially goes through the six or five or six fundamental pillars of nurturing your circadian clock. So that we'll see how uh, people can follow uh, a very simple tip, very simple lifestyle guidance to improve their circadian rhythms. I love that, man. And the last question that we ask at all of our podcasts. For Dr. Panda right now, Professor Panda, what makes a life worth living? Well, <laughs> my life is already worth living for many reasons because, um, you know, our very basic science discovery that we made, time-restricted feeding in mice now it's uh, helping a lot of people to better manage their blood glucose blood pressure and blood cholesterol it's helping a lot of people in having a good night of sleep we as scientists we recognize that um, everybody has one simple life goal to live a long healthy life and irrespective of their age, gender, nationality, or disease or health condition, we all want to be at our peak physical, emotional, and intellectual performance. And this is almost a universal human aspiration and also universal human right. And I see that nurturing our circadian rhythm through managing light or managing food timing can empower millions of people to get close to this universal aspiration to live at their peak performance throughout 24 hours and also for number of years and to put a commercial or to put a dollar or economic value so let's put it this way in the us when someone who doesn't have type 2 diabetes become diagnosed with type 2 diabetes the total healthcare cost and societal cost of living with diabetes for one person for one year is close to $9,000. In the US, currently there are 90 million people who are pre-diabetic. Yes. And 
within next five to 10 years, many of them will become diagnosed with type two diabetes. So now I'm thinking if our research can help even 10 million people to delay their diabetes by one year, that's $90 billion in saving for, from healthcare. And just imagine at a societal level, if you can flip that $90 billion to investment in education research, then we can actually make it a much better, happier world. And it's not only diabetes, it impacts cardiovascular disease and cancer, dementia, depression, a lot of different areas. So that's really worth living to see every day somebody walking up to me and saying how this basic research has changed their lives. Coming back to light, one thing that was very um, gratifying to see, of course, there are many people who work in this area, including Andy Huberman, who made critical contribution to this. Very simple idea. If we, if constant light, living under constant light is so bad for our health, Imagine all the ICUs, whether it is neonatal ICUs where the premature babies are put into constant light 24-7 or severely ill patients who are constantly subject to continuous light and circadian disruption in ICUs. If we can just bring some sense of circadian rhythm to those settings, can we improve health? So there was a nice study done in Mexico City showed that um, when premature babies were born between say, 30 to 35 weeks, if they're put into an IC, neonatal ICU where there is some sense of light, dark cycle, light and very dim light, then those premature babies can get out of the hospital 12 days earlier than those who are under constant light. Wow. 12 days of NICU care has a huge economic as a huge dollar tag on it. Plus all the emotional stress the parents go through when your newborn baby is <laughs> NICU. In the US there are 350,000 babies born premature and they live in neonatal ICU. Just imagine if we can, on an average, if we can reduce their hospital stay by even 10 days for 350,000 kids, uh, babies in a year, that's huge for everybody who has ever worked on light and its impact on health. So these are the things that actually make me feel that it's a life worth living. <laughs> well, man, let me commend you because you've been doing a lot of great work for a really, really long time. And um, I know I'm speaking on behalf of our audience that we are incredibly grateful for, for the work that you do and for communicating it to us, to our audience, for the amazing work that you've been doing. So, man, let me pay my, my gratitude to you for taking the time, for coming on the show, for producing such great work. Um, we are really, really grateful. And I know that people are going to take a lot out of this. And, um, yeah, man, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you and have a perfect circadian day. <laughs>